Today is May 17th, 2014, and this is episode 110. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Thanks for joining us again on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Uh, my name is Adam B. Levine. I'm joined, as always, by the other hosts of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey, everyone. And Stephanie Murphy. Hi. So uh, it's been a while since we've done a host recording. We'll chew with some of the normal back padding and kind of jump right into topics. Today is interesting because one of the higher profile companies in the space on the what I would consider the entrepreneurial side as opposed to the idealist side is a company called Circle led by CEO Jeremy Allaire. They raised some money uh, last year, actually one of the largest amounts of money behind a Bitcoin company so far. And today they unveiled their product. And uh, in the pre-show when we were talking about this, I was like, should we even talk about this? Because I see this getting talked about a lot. But Stephanie, you had pretty much completely i mean you you think that this is a this is a this is a bad thing uh, overall it was kind of the impression that i got from you so the basics of what they're offering is a kind of wallet-like service that's very similar to Coinbase in that they want you to link your bank account, um, they want you to link your personal identity information, but unlike Coinbase, they uh, don't have any delays on any of your purchases. So if you hook up a, a credit card to your Circle account and then you want to buy $200 worth of Bitcoin, then you just do it and then it uh, credits to your account immediately and you can spend it immediately, which is very different than something like Coinbase, where there's usually like a two or three day wait for the, the money to move safely from dollars into Bitcoin. There are some other things to this at a high level, but Stephanie, can can you kind of uh, give me your perspective on the circle thing? What, what's, what don't you like about this? I wouldn't say I think it's a bad thing overall. It's just, I don't, I'm not sure if it's something I'd be interested in using. It seems like pretty much a bank with Bitcoin. <laughs> They're going to be adjusting the vocabulary to try to make it more palatable to people. So instead of buying and selling Bitcoin, it's going to be deposits and withdrawals. They will be managing people's private keys, just like Coinbase. And, you know, I think we all understand the problems with someone else holding on to your private keys when you're talking about Bitcoin. They who hold the private keys have control over the coins. This isn't much different than a bank who can just kind of freeze your account or seize your funds without you having to say anything about it. They did also say they're going to be stringently reporting anybody they suspect of illegal activity. I wonder, you know, they probably just said that to appease the regulators or whatever, but how are they going to be telling who's engaged in so-called suspicious activity and what defines it? They don't really say. And by uh, illegal activity, I'm assuming they mean high-frequency trading, uh, lending without collateral, cheating on the stock market or do they mean buying plants <laughs> well they don't exactly say about that and all they suspect of suspicious activity mm-hmm. is going to be reported so this is exactly like what the banks do if you do a transaction that's over three thousand dollars in the u.s which we try not to be u.s centric on the show but the u.s has some of the most strict banking regulations some argue you know what the point of them is in the world and they're probably going to be following all these to the letter because they're going to be a licensed money transmitter and pretty much acting as a bank uh the other thing that they say about that is that they're they're required to hold all the funds in reserve and they're required to have auditing and so forth and prove that they have all the funds and not be able to invest them for their own purposes And then they say that it's going to be free of charge for people to store Bitcoins. 
So, you know, it, it sounds like, yeah, just give us your Bitcoins. We'll hold on to them for free, you know? <laughs> well, and beyond that, they're even going to insure them. I don't know if you, if you saw that part yes. of it, but yeah, there's free insurance too. And this is something like I've been, I've been super excited about insurance coming to the space because it means that when you have insurance, you have standards because if, if there is theft or loss, then the insurance company actually has to, has to make that thing right, has to fill the gap from their own uh, side of it. And so it's very much in right. their best interest not to have that. But it's interesting but that it's you free here. But the thing that you can't get insurance from is government confiscation of your funds or if they believe that you're suspicious, you know, locking them down or whatever. And my concern about this kind of service is that it's going to entice a lot of people to put their bitcoins in the service or their dollars or whatever, uh, put their funds in the service because it's insured and it's free and oh, just trust us. And then it has all the strings attached of a conventional bank where they can report you for any reason and they can, um, you know, deny service or whatever people are going to have their points in there and then they won't have control over their own funds. And then what's the point? Why is it that that's not Bitcoin? You know, Bitcoin is when you have control over your own money in a way that you don't in the conventional uh, banking system. So that's, that's really my concern with it. So I'm looking through their, their security features here and it does say they have a multi-sig architecture, which image, which means that more than one key is needed in order to sign something. But the way that it's described here makes it seem like it says we employ multi-signature transactions. The physical isolation of keys means the ability to spend funds requires would-be attackers to breach multiple secure locations. The fact that they're saying secure locations actually does kind of support what you're saying, which is that they hold all the pieces of the keys and just kind of simplify that entirely it seems like yeah you might be one of the signatures but they're the other ones and so you can't move your money without their permission and again how is that different from a bank it may be slightly faster and can they move the money without your permission Mm. so who has the majority exactly how many how many keys are there and do you control enough to prevent action from happening lacking your explicit permission I think there's room in the market for Coinbase competitors. And, you know, there's six big banks out there that are eventually going to get into Bitcoin and they're going to need to acquire um, existing Bitcoin banks that already do this uh, relatively well. So now there's two. Uh, we need four more. Uh, all of them have a nice uh, path to exit because within a year or two, the big banks are going to get into this. And then this business is going to be handled by people with much more capital access to regulators and politicians and lobbyists to do it. So this is a dead end business unless you intend to sell to one of the big six banks. And as far as I'm concerned, that seems to me to be the viable exit for all of these businesses and all the power to them. Uh, they will make some money. They will bring some people into Bitcoin by making the on-ramps easier. They're certainly going to make it easier for more traditional, more conservative businesses that like the current banking system, for whom the current banking system is working fine. You know, people who want to sell tear gas and rubber bullets to dictators and not get reported, they'll, they'll be fine. So that's going to be a, a great avenue to replicate the existing banking system. Someone has to try and maintain the status quo by building replicas of the status quo in the new paradigm, at least in the transient period. Uh, we used to have fax to email gateways that used to be a very profitable and good business for helping those who really couldn't give up their faxes to convert them into emails. Um, those really aren't in use much anymore because people just gave up on the idea of faxes as a whole. These are bridge services, really. Bridge services, exactly. And you need bridge services. And with any new technology, you need to familiarize people for whom change is threatening. 
Now, for some of us, the status quo is threatening. The status quo is uh, disastrous, risky, threatening, freedom sapping, horrible, unequal, evil. Uh, for some people, the status quo is working just fine and and change is threatening and evil. And so uh, this fits very well and will actually serve a need and will serve a very big market out there. And it could actually make it easier to get more institutional investors, to get more conservative mainstream businesses into Bitcoin. And they will be able to increase liquidity, which will reduce volatility. They'll be able to stabilize prices they'll be able to introduce more people more easily to Bitcoin. And then it's up to us to persuade these people that they're better off taking that Bitcoin and moving it to wallets they control, which they'll be able to do. Well, and that's exactly right, is that at the core, this is competition. You know, this is Coinbase really hasn't had much. Exactly. I mean, they kind of compete with BitPay in their merchant services. But other than that, it's just been them. And so now Circle has come out and said, OK, we've taken your model and basically are doing all of the things slightly differently. And it's a little bit better for end users. It's more. I mean, like, that's one of the things that really jumped out at me about this. Coinbase doesn't take a lot of risk. Coinbase is a fairly conservative company when it comes to the way that they process incoming transactions, because they basically have a complete capture on their market, the ability to reverse, uh, you know, bank wires and things like that. They, they have a lot of control over that stuff, but they still wait at least two or three days, even if you're a customer doing a fair amount of business with them before something like that will go through. Whereas mm-hmm. with Circle, literally, as soon as you've pressed the button, your account is credited. You have the Bitcoin. You can spend the Bitcoin as Bitcoin wherever you want. So, I mean, like that is that seems like that's huge. How is that going to work for them? Well, this is why they need all the risk assessment and why they need to know their customers is because they're provided. It's, it's uh, you know, to a certain extent, um, BitInstant did this a little bit. They would extend kind of credit. That's how they were doing it. They were playing the role of someone who was able to wait those three or four days for the money to actually go by, via wire as many as 10 days. But they provide the service to their customer by making it so they don't have to do that. It's the same thing here, I think. It sounds like Circle is already going to have all of your money and then you can withdraw some of it as Bitcoin, but they've already got your money. So what do they care? Because they don't have to wait, right? Well, no, not necessarily, because you could you could reverse you could reverse a reversible dollar transaction. So they have that. No, but if they already have it, if they're holding on to your dollars in your Circle account and then you want to withdraw some of it in the form of Bitcoin, they're not holding on to your dollars. That's yeah, not how but, this works. Okay. Um, what happens is that uh, you can buy Bitcoin from just like, okay, so the way that Coinbase's market works is that you can buy it from Coinbase or you can sell it to Coinbase. You can never hold dollars. If you have it on the Coinbase platform, it is by definition held in Bitcoin. If you take it out of the Coinbase platform through their dollar withdrawal process, it is by definition sold for dollars and only the dollars are transferred to you. That's how they get around a lot of the licensing is because they're not doing money transfer. They're essentially brokers. Right. And so Circle is apparently going to be working in much the same way, which means that in the period between you initiating an ACH and that ACH being non-reversible, if they give you Bitcoin during that period, they're exposing themselves to risk. Now, being exposed to risk is not necessarily a bad thing as long as they can measure, uh, account for, and contain that risk. Uh, then taking that risk is a competitive differentiator and a way for them to improve service. And so I think that's a that's a really smart move. Uh, I I see that as a as a great way to have a bit of differentiation in that market. I agree with you, Adam. By the way, I'm a I'm a Coinbase customer. I don't keep my Bitcoin there. 
but I certainly use them very, very regularly to buy and sell Bitcoin for dollars because I'm not because I'm day trading. I'm not interested in that, but because I, I need to pay certain bills that can only be paid in dollars. And sometimes I get paid in dollars and I want to convert it to Bitcoin. And so I use them with my bank accounts all the time. One of the fears I've had for the last year is if I'm getting paid in Bitcoins, most of my income is in Bitcoins. And I have certain expenses that I can't do in Bitcoins, like paying my rent. Then what happens if Coinbase gets shut down or if they have a problem and they can't fulfill orders? Well, then I have to move a large amount of money through local Bitcoins or local traders or who knows what else or through wire transfers through Bitstamp, which is slower and more complicated. And, and so that's a risk. I mean, that's something that makes me uncomfortable. It's one of the areas that I was worried about. So I'm actually really glad to have potentially in the very near future two competing services. I'll have accounts on both. And that way I will have two outlets for converting my Bitcoin to dollars or vice versa. But you're not going to keep your Bitcoins in there. But I'm not going to keep my Bitcoins in there either. No, I'm going to keep control over my private keys. I'm going to use them only as an exchange. And as soon as I get Bitcoins into Bitcoins, I'm going to move them out and keep them under my control. That's the middle ground here is using the services for what they're intended to be without necessarily using them for all of the features that they wish that you would use. Because I mean, a lot, I mean, you know, when you look at a lot of the business models that are circling around things like exchanges and even wallets, um, a lot of it is analytics data. You know, a lot of it is about how people are using this, these tools that's going to wind up being very valuable and that people are trying to kind of build these things around. So again, like Circle, part of their thing is that they also offer, uh, you know, if you go to, like if you go buy something in Overstock in their example video, they show Overstock, which has Coinbase integrated and it shows a Bitcoin address and you click on the Bitcoin address and they have it set up so that it loads your Circle, uh, you know, wallet on the webpage. And you just pay pay uh, pay for it through there. So if you do everything through this wallet, then yeah, the, potentially there's an issue. But it's all off blockchain too. I mean, that's the thing is like there are no transaction fees for anything. At least I think that's what the video said. I'll have to go back and check it again to make sure I'm not totally wrong on that. The usability side of it, I think that's the most interesting part to me is the introduction of insurance. This is the first insured uh, wallet that we've seen, especially one that doesn't cost anything. But if it's available now, then it's the first one that's actually even out there. And the usability of it, the fact that people no longer have to wait days or hours or whatever for a transaction and that they can, you know, that circle will onboard the risk for them. This seems like it's, it's just part of the natural maturation process of what we're going through. Listen, the, the, there's a range from completely centralized services to completely decentralized services. Up to now, we've only been able to operate in the entirely centralized part of that range. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies open up the possibility of operating uh, across the range from completely centralized to completely decentralized. Now, completely decentralized is not easy either. It involves in some ways being your own bank, as the slogan goes, and that involves some difficulty. Your average user today, given the existing technology and general purpose operating systems, will find it hard to secure their Bitcoins adequately to avoid theft. Um, with our existing Bitcoin technology, that still needs to advance. And so for the time being, using Bitcoin in a completely decentralized fashion is both cumbersome for new users and not particularly secure for new users. For power users, for people who have experience, it's something that is both desirable and 
that we can achieve. And so we can operate in that spectrum. And for some users, a centralized service is actually safer, but it also takes away a lot of the uh, power and control over your money. So that's a that's a decision each user needs to make. Now, if we're interested in promoting the decentralized aspects of Bitcoin, we got to do two things. We got to make it a hell of a lot easier for simple users to use it securely, and then we have to spread the message of why a decentralized solution is superior, why it scales better, why it can reach more people around the world who no, do not have access to centralized services because those impose bureaucratic requirements that many people can't fulfill and controls that many people don't want to have um, and why it's superior in terms of uh, freedom, why it's superior in terms of empowering individuals. But in order to do that, we also have to make it easier. So we have a case to make and Circle is making the opposite case and they're making it pretty well. Uh, so those of us who are interested in decentralized Bitcoin need to step up our game. And I think that's good for everyone. This is a pretty impressive product. I have to tell you is that if it works as build and as their video seems to demonstrate, this really is like this is a substantial threat to Coinbase because they, you know, I mean, they both have the identity problems. You know, if you consider it a problem, you know, again, just the usability of the one really seems like it's uh, they, they learned a lot from what people didn't like about Coinbase. But it's a positive thing for Bitcoin. All of these things are positive things for Bitcoin. That's the thing, though, Andreas, is that that feels like it just doesn't even need to go stated because all of this is de facto a positive thing for Bitcoin. This is more money being invested in the ecosystem, more people caring about the types of technologies and more work being done to develop the ideas. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. It's this is, you know, this is the natural process and it's a very good part of it. Yeah. And if uh, one day, a year or two from now, this becomes, you know, Circle Chase versus Wells Coinbase. Yeah, the Fargo. logos are already a little similar, huh? Yeah, then <laughs> then that will be okay too, because then it will both be obvious what choices are being made here and what this resembles. So you can make the choices according to your ideology or your concern about centralization, but it will also represent the arrival of Bitcoin in the mainstream. And this is just a, this is one of the first steps. Uh, when we go mainstream, we dilute principles. That is always something that happens in technology. Now, the, the, the question is whether uh, diluting those principles is a choice or whether diluting those principles is something that changes the core architecture, in which case it's no longer a choice. And this yeah, doesn't change the core point. architecture. So it's a choice. If you want to follow your principles of decentralization, you can use this as a tool, maintain control over your Bitcoins and now have an extra avenue for liquidity. I think that's great. Andreas, I think you brought up a great point that I just want to make sure we highlight, though, because it hasn't changed the core principles yet. But if it gets big enough, you know, there is always that potential that Circle will be or services like it or Chase Circle or whatever will be dictating, you know, what happens with the core Bitcoin protocol. I just wonder how long is it going to be after this point before it's radical to run your own Bitcoin wallet on your computer or to even run the Bitcoin QT client or something like that. How radical is it going to be to be a node <laughs> or, or whatever in the future? Yeah, and I think that question is answered more easily by numbers, which is that it is inevitable that central cannot reach the number of people who can be served by decentralized solutions. We have the advantage of scale on the side of decentralized solutions. The reason 
six billion people are underserved by banking is not because they're not profitable customers, it's not because they don't have money, and it's not because they don't have need for banking services. It's because the very nature of these centralized banking solutions cannot serve them, cannot extend their reach to serve them. And it's there's a reason, uh, you know, 2.5 billion don't have bank accounts at all. And in many cases, it has nothing to do with technology. It has everything to do with politics. So decentralized Bitcoin will to serve a far broader number of people than centralized Bitcoin. You can win that argument simply by serving more people and empowering them more than the centralized solutions. Even if everyone in the North America uh, use only centralized solutions like Circle and Coinbase, um, then we change the entire conversation to Mandarin and start again. And then we change that entire conversation to Brazilian Portuguese and start again. And we keep doing that. There are many people out there who not only are not being served by centralized banking, but cannot be served by centralized banking in Bitcoin or any currency. One of the particularly interesting parts about this particular issue to me is that Circle is able to do all this stuff because they raised $30 million from essentially the legacy financial system, you know, and like VCs that are that are on that side of things. What I'm really curious about is what's the first company going to look like that raises $30 million from the new type of paradigm that we're talking about? I mean, like what what is if, if this is what's possible moving from Coinbase with uh, they raised some, I can't recall how much they raised. I'm terrible with these numbers. Circle coming along and kind of overshadowing them with this larger raise that allows them to to do these other things and you know be generous in these specific ways what happens when you have take the legacy out of it but you leave the resources and the drive there I'm very curious we might not ever see that because maybe it's not needed how much vc funding did blockchain.info have to raise to begin none yeah, well, blockchain.info <laughs> is a website i mean like there's a it's become a big website but there are differences but it's a in the decentralized types of services Yes, but I mean, I think the bigger argument is, are we talking about raising money from traditional VCs for decentralized services? Or are we talking about decentralized services raising decentralized money from a decentralized community? Because I think that's even more powerful. Exactly. So there's there's different models. What we saw here is the centralized service raising centralized legacy money, implement a centralized service. And we're going to see decentralized services money from VCs too through traditional means but what gets really interesting is when you stop raising money through traditional means like VCs and you do things like uh, digital currency based IPOs and global shareholder offerings and those are coming too and they could be bigger and much much more scalable than any of these things we've seen before but again I think we really have to highlight the technologies that we have like blockchain.info but also local bitcoins they didn't raise any capital to start. They just put up a website and maybe those technologies are very powerful too. Local Bitcoins is a global thing. You can scale better. That's the thing. Decentralized services scale better and therefore can grow organically to scale with very little funding and generate their own momentum. The point I wanted to make is, is most of the funding to appease regulators and to deal with compliance costs and those that kind of thing? And is it possible to cut some of that out if you don't need to deal with that stuff? 
Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true, Stephanie. The the, the decentralized services have a low, lower operating cost. Not only do they scale better, they have a lot lower operating cost because they're not basically dancing the regulatory game, which is a barrier to entry, which is very artificial and is designed more to protect uh, incumbent banks from competition than it is to protect consumers, you know, no matter what people may say about it the, the reality is that it works to protect incumbents from competition more than protect consumers in practice as we've seen repeatedly over the last five years so the question is do you really need to raise money to do that or would you instead be raising money to do innovation circle has some innovation but they have regulatory innovation and regulatory capital more than anything else CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Hey everybody, quick update before we get back to the show. For the last few months, we've been working on improving the ways you can access LTB content. A few days ago, we launched the new web platform at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, which right now looks like a graphical, clean front page. But more importantly, we'll serve as our platform over the next number of years to have dozens of front pages created like Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, showcasing the best content from thousands of independent blogs also operating on the platform. This is the first of many announcements we'll be making over the next few months. We hope you enjoy our work. Now back to the show. So perhaps relevant to our discussion that we were just having, it's recently come out that there's basically a government program in the U.S., that's handed down by the Department of Justice, ironic name, to basically cut off banking services within the legacy banking system to certain legal industries that they just don't like. For instance, pornography, porn actors, and firearms dealers and people who are in the firearms business. Even products that offer a lifetime guarantee or a lifetime warranty or products that uh, just have a lot of chargebacks in their business bank accounts can find their accounts down with no explanation. And in fact, there was a, a story that came out, I think, in Vice, where they kind of profiled someone who had this happen to them. And she was a, a former adult actor, not even currently doing porn. And both her bank account and her husband's bank account were shut down. He's not even a porn star. He just was married to her. And so their social security numbers were linked. You know, this is happening where banks are literally denying banking services to certain people. Uh, I believe there was another guy who was quoted in the same article who uh, was a porn producer or something like that. And he tried to refinance his mortgage and was told that he was being declined for moral reasons. Uh, so this is, this is actually happening. And, um, there have been a he number of people in the banking. He was legally declined for moral reasons. I like that. Yeah. He was declined of refinancing his mortgage for moral reasons. I mean, it just sounds like something that's made up, but it's not. It's really happening. 
just for a second before we move on to discuss this topic a bit deeper because i think it's very easy to focus on one or two issues and i'm sure some people may morally object to pornography and some other people may morally object to firearms and then if you if you keep going that down that uh, slippery slope you you find some really interesting things so uh, here's the list of uh, 30 high risk merchant categories that the fdic has that are currently being pursued by the doj and so supposedly that are also the focus of Operation Chokepoint, where by applying regulatory and uh, subpoena power pressure, they are forcing the banks, forcing the, the cost of business of serving these accounts so high because of extrajudicial administrative action shutting them down. So ammunition sales, cable box descramblers, cable box descramblers, coin dealers, credit card schemes, credit repair services, dating services, debt consolidation scams, drug paraphernalia, escort services, firearm sales, fireworks sales, get rich products, government grants, home-based charities, lifetime guarantees, lifetime memberships, lottery sales, mailing list sales and personal info sales, money transfer networks, online gambling, payday loans, pharmaceutical sales, Ponzi schemes, pornography, pyramid type sales, racist materials, surveillance equipment, telemarketing, tobacco, and travel clubs. Now you'll notice are at least half a dozen billion dollar industries. And so what this means is that they're targeting only the tiniest instances. Legal ones. Legal billion dollar industries that are run by giant um, S&P 500 listed corporations, but they're not targeting them. Don't think they're shutting Pfizer's accounts down, right? Or uh, shutting any of those. What they're targeting is really small scale competitors that represent a nuisance to these large corporations. There's a very interesting aspect of due process and equal protection under the law here. This is legislation without legislative authority, which should worry everyone. I don't know if we mentioned this yet, but the name of this is Operation Choke Point. And what they're attempting to do is choke out certain industries by denying them banking services. Centralized systems have choke points. Centralized banking is a choke point. And so this is what happens when you combine government authority, but not lawful authority, not authority derived through legislation. Because listen, you can morally object to all these things. If you morally object to all these things, go lobby Congress, pass a law, make them illegal tough luck, then it's legal to pursue these under law. So what they're doing is they're pursuing them extrajudicially. They're using power of regulation over a corporate system in order to pursue things that they have not been authorized by Congress to do. That means that they are violating the separation of powers principles. And at the same time, they're creating an unholy alliance of unaccountable government and unaccountable corporate power. I believe there's a word for that. Fascism? Yes. It may be soft fascism, but this is most definitely fascism. The idea that you will take lawful activities that you morally object to, but you don't have the ability to pass laws against because you don't have the consent of the governed, and then use strong-arm power through administrative and regulatory powers of the executive 
to force corporations or collude with corporations, that is fascism. And it's a, it's a nice little slippery slope here because of course if your account gets banned what do you do you don't have any due process rights if it's a law you can appeal uh, you can fight it through the courts you can uh, challenge it constitutionally you can't challenge an account closure constitutionally or, or judicially uh, when the bank has done it under these circumstances you a lot harder a specific law and so what this does is it removes uh, the rights to due process and equal protection under the law of individuals. And these are applied disproportionately on minorities, on poor people, on small businesses, and on people who don't have the power to either bribe the government not to target them uh, or fight this with an army of lawyers in the courts. And, and this is really scary stuff because this proves definitively why government cannot be trusted with power over money. It's authority and control, right? I mean, that's the thing is that is that if you make these things laws, then there's the ability to stop them. Whereas if you just say, okay, well, nobody's paying attention anyways, let's just do stuff and nobody's going to call us on it, then you can get away with that for kind of a long time. We're going down this path because the pie continues to get smaller because the current system we have isn't designed to make the pie bigger. It's designed to you know continue perpetuating itself until absolutely it cannot any longer. I don't know. Taking these things outside of the legal system is such a messy process. I don't even know how you recover from that. How do you fix a problem like this without saying, okay, everything that's happened as far as government is concerned, you know, with all of these actions and all of the crazy repercussions, certainly that they've caused and the millions of instances they've been applied. You know, I mean, like, how, how do you say, okay, well, just kidding. That was all wrong. Everybody actually, that's no longer, I mean, that, that's okay now. To a certain extent, doesn't it become ingrained in the culture just because you have so many people who have already been subjected to it and gone through it? Well, this is a fundamental breakdown of the rule of law, which is something that you see in most countries. Now, th th this isn't surprising stuff. This is this is the the classic set of tools of a banana republic, uh, of a dictatorship, of an authoritarian regime. I mean, if you look around the world, and certainly where where I grew up in in Greece, arbitrary and capricious implementation of law and administrative power is nothing new. And what you do is, as you have this, you know, I'm sure, you know, in, in Russia, you don't worry about whether there is lawful authorization to seize a business or shut down its bank account, because that doesn't really matter. But as you erode the rule of law, what happens is you also erode respect for the law, and then you also create corruption, because then the way to resolve this is through bribery, right? You don't have due process, so instead well, you replace that with corruption. And we're seeing banks settle. We're seeing lawsuits, you know, from government agencies against banks for violating the vague statute and and banks are settling so i mean what is that but a bribe really where is the law being applied the law is being applied to shut down things that are perfectly lawful for which the executive cannot receive authorization from congress while at the same time the department of justice did absolutely nothing to prosecute the rigging of markets robo signing mortgage fraud and massive theft that uh, that happened in 2008 in the run-up 2008 and of course in the five years since continues unabated and rewarded eventually we we're going to see more prosecutions under things like this than than for fraud against consumers and what it reveals once again is the regulatory powers are not used to protect consumers they're used to either implement morality without legislative approval 
or to create competitive barriers to entry. And a lot of these things that are on this list are things where you have large established corporations that want to be shielded from any type of competition. And so this is a perfect opportunity to shut it down through regulation rather than competing in the free market. All it does is proves once again why uh, having control over your own money is essential, why governments can't be trusted to control money. You know, there's a related story to this from back in um, March, I believe, where, you know, there were, you know, we saw the tense situation in, in Russia, where Visa and MasterCard cut off um, payments to some Russian banks that were actually previously, you know, approved, according to the US. And uh, the reason for that was to quote, you know, put sure on people they saw as members of uh, Putin's inner circle. So, of course, this mm-hmm. is used for political reasons. Of course, it's used to apply pressure in ways that, um, you know, politicians want to apply pressure. And you're exactly right, Andreas. I mean, that's why we really have to apply some questioning to these types of policies and also question whether, you know, whether being banked, so-called, is such a great thing. You know, does it create more problems than it solves? Well, yes. I mean, that's that's the thing. The idea here, what you're being sold, is that the banking system and its regulations protect consumers from theft. But then when the theft is being conducted by the banking system, they don't protect consumers from theft. And when the government endorses that theft by not prosecuting it, uh, or even rewards it in some cases, uh, then the banking system is not protecting consumers at all. So then you have to think, who is the banking system protecting and and who is it benefiting? Uh, What that shows is why decentralized systems that give no one the power uh, over the flows of money are uh, more fair, scale better, and deliver more power and more freedom to individuals to spend their money as they choose. And many individuals making individual choices is better than some unaccountable bureaucrat without any oversight being able to do whatever the hell they want and pressure banks because they don't like a specific uh, industry or specific practice. That's what happens every day is people make individual decisions based on their own economic well-being, you know, or what they perceive it to be moving forward. And so that's really the interesting part about this to me is that where we're talking about the U.S. and we're talking about people there in various industries essentially being unbanked forcibly, they didn't want to leave their bank, they're being kicked out. And so because of that, you have people who wouldn't probably have considered a change to anything other than a bank. But now suddenly they have this experience and it gets law, you know, again, so it it changes things at a fundamental level about how people react to this stimulus when it comes in the future, you know, and and uh, how they make decisions about these things. And we can see the same thing happening with the Russia situation. It's been described as the de-dollarization. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. The token has been around for 200 and something years. I love how you just called the U.S. dollar a token. (laughs) When the current system kicks people out, those people have a choice. They can use nothing or they can use something that they create or that they work with someone else to create or that someone else has created and isn't related to the thing they were kicked out from. So you're not actually doing anything other than making your own pool of users substantially smaller. And again, like that's what I see happening over and over again 
with uh, with the situation in uh, you know in Asia with with Russia and with China is that the U.S. seems to be acting in ways that are antagonistic to the point where it is becoming worthwhile for these countries simply to do their own thing. We are creating in the parlance of what we may call in the future, if the, you know, a war winds up happening between great powers or reserve currency powers, uh, you know, we are setting up the axis of evil, and it's entirely being done because we are treating them like. And, and basically rubbing their faces in the fact that we can do whatever we want because we control the reserve currency and they can't do anything about it. So again, like it's just this, it's this super interesting soup of we wouldn't be able to even be, have the context to understand why this conversation is relevant if the existing system wasn't doing its damnedest to get everybody out of it as possible. And then those people have no attachment. And that difference is that people have a choice. Now, right now, most people don't even know they have a choice yet, but some of us already do. And more and more people every day are discovering that they have a choice. If you become unbanked today, there is now a choice. And that choice is Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And if you come over to Bitcoin, we will welcome you with open arms and we will give you full control over your own money and over your financial destiny and over your financial choices. See, but you're saying we will. And that's so wrong. We are. It's not we will. It's 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 there. It's there. You just, you yeah, can. exactly. You're right. It's you, not you can. It's not don't do yeah. evil. It's can't do evil. Um, and so the system is designed in such a way that it empowers individuals immediately without permission without need for access uh, permission, without need for verification. It is available. Just make the choice and join it. And then you have the power by default. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So great. Come join us. We're having fun over here with Bitcoin. And uh, just more people need to figure out they have a choice. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. They need to figure out they have a choice. And that is, that's, I think, the the thing that really has come to me over the last couple of months is that at the core, what we've done with this technology and what these types of technologies and decent, I mean, really it's decentralization. It's not even about Bitcoin. It's just decentralization, but decentralized web-based technologies break monopolies. If you have a system where you have a centralized monopoly that has complete control over a market and you introduce a disruptive technology into it that does the same thing, you no longer have a monopoly. And if you make it international, then you really no longer have a monopoly because even if it attracts negative attention to one country, it just, again, just shifts the tide, pushes the water, and it seeks its own level. So that's, you know, you, people have not realized that regardless of what you're talking about, the ability to perpetuate a monetary monopoly just doesn't exist in a way that it did even four or five years ago. And that's fundamentally changed the world we live in. Thanks for listening to episode 110 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.